No, I, I, I flew in from Detroit today. I mean, it happens to be Detroit, but everything's Hashgacha Pratis. So I was actually, I was thinking about whatever. I won't go, I won't go through the whole stream of consciousness. But once upon a time, a very, very long time ago, there was a famous Jewish baseball player in Detroit named uh, Hank Greenberg. And there's a biography about Hank Greenberg. And in the biography, it talks about anti-Semitism that he faced, and particularly in Detroit, and particularly from Henry Ford, who we know was uh, an interesting guy. Uh, he, he printed the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and he... Uh, so anyways, in, in the Hank Greenberg biography, I don't remember the name of it, but there's a, there's a joke there that the Jews in Detroit used to tell back in the, uh, when was that, in the 30s, 1930s. So the, the, they used to say that Henry Ford uh, got into uh, fortune-telling, like he wanted to know uh, his future. So he went to a, like a you know, person who reads a crystal ball, a fortune-teller, and he said, uh, can you see anything about my future? So she says, uh, I see uh, that the day that you die is going to be on a Jewish holiday. He says, which one? Sukkot, <laughs> Pesach, Hanukkah. <laughs> she says, any day you die is going to be a Jewish holiday. Okay. But what's the connection? There's a Medrash, uh, Medrash Rabba, Esther Rabba, that says that one of Haman's complaints to Achashverosh when he was trying to rile up Achashverosh to sign on to the genocidal decree is he said, look at these Jews, they constantly have a Yom Tif, they always have holidays. Like, you, you never know when, when, when they're, when they're going to need to take off. And uh, so that was one of his complaints, that the Jews have too many holidays. So Hashem said to Haman, so to speak, wicked one, you complain that they have too many holidays, we're going to add a holiday that celebrates your demise. And that is the origin of Purim. Okay. So Purim is a story. It's all about a story, a whole Megillah of a story, which uh, most of us are familiar with on some level. But what we're going to try to do tonight is look at the Purim story on a little bit of a deeper level with the help of Chsidis, Pnimiya Satoira, the deeper uh, inside secrets. So let's first talk about Haman's appeal to Achashverosh. There's an interesting moment that the Gemara in Megillah describes. It fills in the blanks in the dialogue between Haman and Achashverosh. Haman comes to Cheshverish and he makes, he, he's trying to paint the picture. He's trying to paint the picture of why the Jews are a nuisance and why Cheshverish should sign on to the decree to get rid of them. And so Rava in the Gemara and Megillah uh, says that Haman was a master at negative PR. He was a master at slander. He knew how to malign people like no one else. And it's all encoded in the words that he, he, that he chose. So he says, Haman says to Achashverosh, he says, Yeshnoi am echad, there is one nation, talking about the Jewish people, mefuzer mefeirad, who are scattered and uh, tossed around. Now, there's different levels of um, Lashon Hara that Haman is encoding there. But one of the things that Haman was implying is Achashverosh was concerned. He knew a little bit about history. And he knew that plenty of people have taken on the Jews. And they didn't, it, no matter what it looked like, in the end, it wasn't good for those who tried to uh, oppress Jews. 
So Hashverosh was hesitant. He was scared. He says, look, I don't like the Jews any more than you do, but I don't want to be the guy who has to get rid of them and then I, I, it's, gonna, it's going to be my own demise. It's going to undercut me. So Homan tells him, you don't have to worry about that. Why? Normally you would, but in this instance you don't because you don't know the situation. They were in their homeland for hundreds of years, but they blew it. They were tossed out. There was an exile. And now 70 years have passed and they're in exile and they're totally assimilated. So, yesh noi am, there is a nation. Gemara says, yoshnu, they've been sleeping. Sleeping from their relationship with Hashem. So normally you're right, Haman says to Hashem, you shouldn't start up with the Jews because God's going to get you. But in this case, because the Jews are spiritually asleep, you're going to be fine. You will be able to get rid of them with impunity. You're not going to face any consequences. Okay. But Hashem wasn't 100% convinced still. He says, hold on a second. But, Yeshnai Am Echad, Echad, they're one nation. So you're telling me they're asleep, but in that nation, this is how the Marashah explains it, there are good guys. They have tzaddikim, they have righteous people. So Haman flipped that, though he used it as an argument against saving the Jews or not messing up with them, not messing with the Jews. He says, no, 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 to the contrary, they're all the same. They're an Am Echod. You think that there are some who are exceptions? No, they're all asleep to their relationship with Hashem. That's how the Marashah explains it. Then there's the, uh, the Sfasemis. He explains, no, no, you're right. There are people who are exceptions, the leaders, the tzaddikim, the righteous ones. However, they're the worst of all because they're the leadership. They're responsible for everybody else. So the fact that Everybody else is asleep spiritually. Is a, is a, that's a, that's a, that's a, and that's an argument. That's a, that's an indictment against those who were supposed to be their leaders. So trust me, the ones who are asleep certainly you can mess with, and God won't uh, punish you. And even those who are not asleep, it's on their shoulders that the other that the majority are asleep. So you can mess with them too. Don't worry about it. So you see, the whole conversation was humming, trying to. Um, forestall any argument that a Hashverosh would have to back out. Now, we can go a little bit deeper even. Haman continues. He says, there's a nation, yeah? Scattered and, uh, I don't know, tossed around. Separated. So, at a deeper level, what's the conversation now? Achashverosh is now asking, well, hold on a second. Um, the Jewish people are known for having a great deal of solidarity. So in, in as much as they're united, even when they're not up to good, but they're together, and there's a certain strength in numbers. You know, it's interesting, I don't know if I'm at liberty, at liberty to say this, but I was in, I said I just came in from Detroit, so yesterday I was meeting with, I won't say who, but a, a well-known Jewish fundraiser, and he told me that the national head of the NAACP called him, and he says, teach us the secret of Jewish unity, because we want to try, we want to try it in our community, because we understand that the Jews all, you know, look out for each other. So that's essentially... What Achashverosh is telling Haman, hold on a second, the Jewish people, maybe they're asleep, but you know what, they have this certain power and unity. And I'm concerned about that, that that will make them formidable, and I won't be able to take them on. There's a famous Madrash, Pashas Nitzavim, that uh, gives a marshal of a, of a man who had many sons. He was on his deathbed, and as he was, uh, before he passed away, he, he told his sons to come gather around him. And he was giving them sort of his ethical will. And uh, I don't know why. <laughs> it's one of the, don't ask why, it's a parable. But he took out a bundle of reeds on his deathbed. He had props. So, <laughs> so <laughs> he took out, <laughs> he, 
I bet you had that bundle of reeds waiting for a long time. Okay, so he, he, uh, he takes out this bundle of reeds and he passed it to his sons and he says, you know, see who can break it. So they all tried and each one of them, uh, he couldn't break, you know, like tear the phone book in half, right? You know, with a Charles Atlas to, to tear the phone book in half. So break the bundle, nobody could break the bundle of reeds. So he says to them, let me show you the trick. And they handed it back to him. And of course, he was on his deathbed. He was very frail. He wasn't, str- he wasn't, he wasn't very strong. <laughs> so he took the bundle of reeds and he untied the string that was tying them together. And he just took each reed on its own and just snapped them one by one until they were all broken. He says, that's how you break a bundle of reeds. So he says, I want you to know, my sons, as long as you're unified, as long as you stick together, you're unbreakable. But the minute you're out on your own, that's when uh, you're in trouble. Okay, and, and, and that's, that medrash is on the, on Pashas Nitzavim, on the Pasuk, Atim Nitzavim, Hayim Kulechem, you are all standing together from the highest, you know, the heads of the tribes to the drawers of the water. The point is that when all Jews are together, when we're unified, we have a, uh, a special strength. Okay, so Hashvedosh was concerned about this. So, that is precisely why Haman told him, Yeshnoi Am Echad, Yes, they're one nation, and they have a special strength in their oneness, but you should know in this particular case right now, they're not in their homeland, they're in exile, right? This is 70 years after the Babylonian exile, and they've not returned yet to build the second temple. So they are all scattered around, they're living in different communities, they're separate from each other, don't worry about it, you can take them out. So we learn from this. What do we learn from this? The incredible power of Jewish unity. That as long as we're together, nothing can stop us. But the minute we are separate from each other, then, God forbid, our enemies actually consider that maybe, uh, maybe they have a chance against us. That's one important lesson here that we can learn from, from Haman himself. They say, right? That's what David Malach says in Tehillim. From my, from my enemies, I become wise. So that's some wisdom we can learn from our enemy, from, from Haman. Now, there's a deeper level. There's a deeper level of looking at this as well. This, the, same, the same conversation. Haman is saying, There's one nation. Hashverus is saying, hold on, that's what I'm worried about, their oneness. He's saying, don't worry about it, they're scattered, they're separate. But on a deeper level, on a deeper level, this is actually an argument that shows why Hashverus should not start up with the Jews. So they're going back and forth here. Haman and Chashverish. On one level, why are the Jews strong? Because they're one. And how are they strong? Because they're unified. On a deeper level, the point is that they're an Am Echad, even when they're Mafuzer or Mafaydad. In other words, where do you see true Jewish unity? Not when they're all together, but you see it even more to the contrary when each one is separate on his own. What do I mean by that? There was a a blood libel about a hundred years ago. For hundreds of years the blood libel had been disproven. Nobody even dared to uh, level such claims. You know, the the, the old claim that Jews are using Christians' blood for uh, matzah. And about 100 years ago, I think 1916, was uh, right before the Communist Revolution, the last few years of uh, Tsarist Russia. So there was a, a blood libel against a Jew named uh, Mendel Bayless. Uh, a child was found murdered, a non-Jewish child was found murdered. And so somebody said that the Jew did it, and he did, it was a ritual killing. And the, it was actually a modern-day blood libel. And it went to court, and the trial lasted for, for over a year. And um, at one point, one of the arguments that the prosecution was making 
is they said, we have proof from your Talmud that you don't regard um, non-Jewish life as human life. Where, where, where would you find such a thing? There's no such thing. They said, yeah, because the Gemara says in Yuvamas, uh, I think, Atem Kriyim Adem, based on a Pasuk from uh, the Navi. Atem Kriyim Adem, you, the Jewish people, are called Adam. Not Umas not uh, the non-Jewish nation. So only Jews are called Adam. Adam is like the first man, like Adam and Chava. Adam is human. So only Jews are called human. Therefore, that's why, that's why you <coughs> murder non-Jews. Okay, that's not what it means. Not what it means, but how do you prove that? How do you answer that? So one of the uh, rabbinical consultants on the defense was uh, Reb Meir Shapiro, the Rosh Hashiva. <coughs> Many people know Reb Meir Shapiro from the Daf Yemi. In Lubavitch, we know him because he went to the Rebbe's chasana. And the fear that could ever had him sit up front next to the Rebbe and actually told him to speak with the Rosh Hashiva in learning which uh, Rav Meir Shapiro very much enjoyed. And then after the chuppah, he wanted to continue talking to the Rebbe and learning. The Rebbe wasn't talking to him. He says, why, why won't you talk to me? He says, before, my father-in-law told me to do it, so I had to do it. It was a shlichus. But now, <laughs> you know, okay. So, um, Rav Meir Shapiro was on the, was on the uh, panel, or the, uh, the consultants for the defense. And he explained... He says, you tell them just like this. This very trial is the greatest proof and illustration of what that passage in the Talmud means, in that it doesn't mean at all what they're saying it means. It means something powerful, but not at all what they're saying it means. And this very trial is the greatest proof and example. He said like this. There was a child who was murdered. Okay, that, That's a fact. The, the defendant didn't do it. But this child was, was killed. Now, his family has to live with that for the rest of their lives. But I want to know, their, did their village go on with life? And did their country go on with life? Of course they did. Only this family, it's only this family they're suffering alone. And the rest of their village, and how much more so the rest of their country, has moved on. Now, Mendel Bayless is one Jew sitting here on trial. And I want you to know something. Every single Jew in the world, we're talking about 100 years ago, before you, know, you just go and check the internet. Every single Jew in the world gets up every single morning, whether he lives in London or in New York or in Buenos Aires, he picks up the, the morning paper and he's searching, is there any news about the Bayless trial in Russia? As if he himself were on trial. Why? Because when something happens to one Jew, it's happening to all Jews. He says that's what it means, atem, that's the plural of second person, not ato, but atem. You, plural, kruyim, adam, are called a person. Not you collectively are called a people, many people. You all collectively are called a person. The Jewish people are not a people, they're a person. One person, an adam. And there's no plural for the word adam. Because the Jewish people are like one guy in millions of bodies, living millions of lives, but it's like one guy. So this is what, this is what the Chashverish and Haman are discussing. The fact that the Jewish people are an Am Echad, they're one people, and even when they're mafuzer or mafoyed, even when each one of them is living in his own place, he has his own life, they're doing their own things, but that itself doesn't undercut the unity in a certain way. It emphasizes the unity. It's like, um, I know we're, we're, we're getting ready for Purim, so it's hard to think about uh, Sukkot. But Sukkot is a, is a holiday of, of Achtas Yisrael, Jewish unity. Why? Because you have the Sukkah, the great equalizer, right? It's that one roof that's overhead that, that encompasses all Jews. And we all go into the Sukkot and encompasses us all. But there's a deeper unity. There's a deeper unity of sukkahs, even more than the, than the sukkah. And that's the dalad minim, that's the, the lulav. Why? Because you have dalad minim, you have four species. If you would have all the same species, 
you wouldn't have a kosher lulav. You have to have all four different species. And yet, if you're missing any one of them, even the willow, which doesn't have taste and it doesn't have smell, represents those who don't have mitzvahs and they don't have Torah. But if you're missing that and you have all three others, you have nothing. You don't have the mitzvah. So where do you see oneness? Not in homogenizing and making everything uniform. You really see the deepest oneness in diversity. So the fact that Jews can live separate lives and in separate places with separate callings and separate missions, but underlying all of that, there's this certain intrinsic unity. It's almost like you know, the body. Sometimes Jewish unity is compared to, the, to, 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 to an organism, to a, to a single body. There's a, there's a Gemara in Yerushalmi, in Nidarim, talks about a guy who made a, a nether. He's neider bahana. What does that mean? He says, Pliny, so-and-so is a jerk. If he's throwing a party, I'm not going. Right? He, t- he makes a, a nether. I'm not going to have benefit from so-and-so because I don't like him. Now, you should know about, and we're not going to get off on topic about, about, about nedarim, but in Jewish law, there's two things you have to know about a, about a nether, about a vow. One, it's a mitzvah to keep a vow. Two, it's a mitzvah to get a rabbi who's an expert in in removing vows to remove it from you. So until it's removed, you got to keep it, but you're supposed to get it removed if you can. So how do you get it removed? You go to the chacham, go to the person who's an expert in annulling vows, and he has to find a pesach. A pesach means an opening, but the opening is he has to find something. If I had known it at the time I made the vow, I would never have made that vow. So a guy makes a nether. I'm never eating milchik again. And then the, he goes to the chacham. The chacham says, do you know that ice cream is milchik? No, I didn't know. If I had known that ice cream is milchik, I would never make such a vow. Oh, so now we found the Pesach. Now you're, the vow is annulled. Okay, so let's say he makes a vow that I don't want to have benefit from so-and-so because he's a jerk. I don't like him. Okay, so he goes to the chacham and he says, I made such a vow. So the, 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 the Gemara Yerushalmi says, the Chacham is supposed to tell the guy a parable. He's supposed to say, once upon a time there was a guy working in his workshop. And he was working with a sharp tool, with an awl. And he slipped, and the, the, the hand that was holding the tool stabbed his other hand. So then, he grabbed the tool with the hand that had just been wounded, and he stabbed the offending hand to get back at it. Does this make sense? And the guy says, well, of course not. That's ridiculous. Ah, and that's precisely what happens when one Jew hurts one, hurts another, and then that Jew hurts the offending party back. It's not just two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right means, eh, there's no point. You know, just because he hurt you, now you're going to hurt him back, doesn't take away your pain. This is much more than that. This is saying, he hurt you and you hurt him back, the same guy got hurt twice. Because the Jews are one guy. But where do you see that the Jews are one guy? This, this, this parable of the body. So in a body, you have all types of different limbs and different organs. You don't want all limbs and all organs to function the same. That wouldn't be healthy. You want there to be diversity. You want each limb and each organ to do its job differently. But underlying... They're all one body with one life force. You know, even to, to make it a little bit more, I don't know, relatable to us. It's all the same DNA, right? You take a cell from, from uh, the brain or from the toenail, it's the same DNA, right? Same genetic code, because it's one guy, it's one person. So that, that, that's, <clears throat> that's what Achashverish and Haman were discussing, that ultimately, even when the Jews are separate from each other, no, that's especially where you see the inescapable, irreducible, underlying unity of Jews. It never goes away. Because the Jewish people are not a people, they're a person, one guy. Okay. But let's go back to the, the first, let's go back to the first uh, detail we discussed there that, that Haman brought up in his argument when he said, Yeshnoi. Yeshnoi means there are, you know, Yesh means there is. And, and the Gemara says, he's, he's making a play on words. Yoshnu, they've been sleeping. They've been sleeping. Okay, so he said they've been sleeping to malign them. To say, you know, they're, they're, they're asleep at the wheel, right? They're not, uh, they're not attentive. They're not doing what they ought to be doing. 
But even this, where he attempted to malign them, if you <laughs> dig deeper, you can't get away from the fact that this too is pointing out something intrinsically, inescapably good about the Jews. What, what is it? In order to malign the Jews, in order to say that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, that they're not honoring their contract with God, Homan had to describe them as asleep. Asleep. What does that mean? Asleep, that's not a permanent problem. Asleep is, okay, you're asleep now. And if I wake up, then I'll get back to myself and I'll get back focused on what I have to be doing. So what, even when he was trying to malign the Jews, the great anti-Semite, the great Jew hater, the one with genocidal fantasies about the Jews, he couldn't get around the fact, he had to admit, that even when the Jews are not behaving the way they ought to behave, deep down, they're still intrinsically attached, they're still connected to Hashem. And if they're not acting that way, it's just like a person who's asleep. He just needs to be, he has to nudge him a little bit. There's something called a pintalayid, that deep down core of Jewish identity that exists in every single Jew. And it doesn't matter how a Jew behaves during their lifetime. It doesn't matter if, you know, the Alter Rebbe in Tanya, he points out an, an incredible phenomenon, which unfortunately we have thousands, millions of, of, of cases throughout history to corroborate this. Jews who had no, no ideological uh, commitment to Judaism during their lifetime martyred themselves, chose martyrdom rather than to renounce Judaism. Now, to say that religious Jews chose martyrdom, that's, that doesn't need to be explained because anybody who has an ideological commitment, they might be committed enough to actually you know, give up their lives. That's, that doesn't require explanation. What requires explanation is the phenomenon of throughout history, Jews who are not, not ideologically committed, meaning they weren't religious, and they died as Jews and refused to renounce their Judaism in, in, in the last moment. You know, when, when it's in chapter 18 in Tanya. Every time I read this, every, you know, every year we go through Tanya, I always think about Daniel Pearl, who was intermarried. He did not consider himself, I mean, he was not religious on any level, didn't consider himself Jewish other than just, you know, ethnically, culturally. And yet in his last moments, not only does he proudly say, I'm a Jew, my father was a Jew, my mother was a Jew, he starts sharing information about his connection to, to, his, to, his, to his family line, to his family back in Bnei Brak, to the, the street that was named after his grandfather. Like, they, they, they didn't know that. Al-Qaeda didn't know that. They didn't have the information. But this is what was coming out of him in the last moment. Why? Because there's something deep down that's, that's inescapable about the Jew. So even Haman knows this, that even when a Jew is not acting Jewish, deep down, his essence is just as Jewish as every other Jew. And he just needs to be awoken. Unfortunately, where what is the powerful wake-up called the alarm clock? Martyrdom, right? When it comes down to this clear uh, um, dilemma, where you're, you're when, as long as long as you can rationalize, you know what rationalize means? Rational lies, right? <laughs> lies you tell yourself that are so logical that that's the Yetzirah's job, the evil evil inclination's job is to tell you smart-sounding lies. Look, this won't hurt. This is okay. This is justifiable. This is not such a big deal. And, you know, basically to, to get rid of your guilt. So, a person can go through life rationalizing all types of things, you know, keep shifting the line. The red line goes farther and farther out until maybe there's no line anymore. And there's no way to get clarity until there's this there's the situation, we just can't deny it, you know, where, where, where unfortunately it's happened, like I said, thousands, probably millions of times in Jewish history, where there was this test, this Nisoyen of Amuna, you know, renounce the God of Israel or die, and, and Jews who were not religious chose death. Why? That's an inexplicable phenomenon. 
unless you resort to a metaphysical explanation, which is it has nothing to do with ideological commitment, clearly. It has nothing to do with what beliefs they espoused or, 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 or lived by during their lifetime. It has to do with something that's deep down in the Jew and the Jew can't get rid of even, even in spite of themselves. And it comes out when you can no longer rationalize, when you can no longer fool yourself. By the way, I want to tell you, there is a dirty trick, and it's a dirty trick, so therefore I'm going to tell you about it, but you shouldn't do it, where you can activate a Jew's pintalayid, even if they tell you, oh, I'm not religious, even if they badmouth Judaism, whatever they say, I give you a line that will rile up a Jew and make them all of a sudden tell you how Jewish they are. Just casually cast aspersions on their Jewish identity. Be like, oh, I get it, so you're not really Jewish. What? <laughs> I'm not Jewish. How dare you? You're not Jewish, right? No Jew will let you get away with that. You never tried it? Go try it. No. It's not nice, but if you want to see something amazing, the story that I have that's like this, I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't, God forbid, I didn't do it on purpose. But I had a chavrusa, a guy I used to learn with, who was a Buddhist priest. I was just thinking on my way over here. Baruch Hashem, I've been here in five towns for a couple of years, and I've told almost all of my good stories. So I got to start having some experiences so I get some new stories. <laughs> Nothing interesting has been happening to me recently, so I don't have new stories. But... Uh, I don't think I told this story ever. I used to have a, a guy I used to learn with. Did I ever tell you about my friend, the Buddhist priest? Yeah, I did. Oh, who, did I tell you? What, you think? In Tanya class? No. No? I don't remember. You don't remember? So, <laughs> I used to study with a Buddhist priest. Now, you want to take one guess why I used to study? Because yeah, he was Jewish, of course. <laughs> but when a Jew becomes Buddhist, you know, you know, there's an expression, the Jews are like everybody else, only more so. So a good Jewish boy becomes a Buddhist. He can't be a regular Buddhist. <laughs> In fact, not only he was a Buddhist priest, he was the world's foremost translator of Tibetan scripture. Wow. Yeah. A genius. The guy was a genius. Absolute genius. He had a PhD in philosophy from Princeton. And the guy was a genius. I'll tell you what a genius he was. I would go study with him the deepest concepts and he would immediately be able to hold a conversation about those ideas. And even more than that, he would be able to make jokes about the subject matter that made sense. That were funny, jokes that were funny and made sense and were appropriate to the subject matter. So I, I don't know if, you, that, if that impresses you or not, but from my perspective, somebody who can hear an abstract idea that's totally new to them and like be so comfortable with it that he's, he's making jokes about it that actually are funny, that's, okay, he was, he was, a, he was an amazing mind. Anyway, um, so we used to study together. One time we were studying together, and I don't remember the subject, but I said to him, you know, there's a recording, a video of the Lubavitcher Rebbe speaking about this idea. Would you like to see it? So he says, yes, I would like to see it. Um, by the way, just a side point, but one thing that was cool about studying with him is he liked American Jews get nervous with the Rebbe Chassid relationship because Americans are very independent, right? Because we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. Like, if you ask an American, like, you know, uh, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Taekwondo. Who's your teacher? Master Cho. Right? No problem. Taekwondo, they have a master. Master Cho is my master. Then you ask them, by the way, you're Jewish, right? Yeah, I'm a religious Jew. Who's your master? Oh, I don't have a master. <laughs> Taekwondo, they have a master. Judaism, they don't have a master. Judaism started with Moshe Rabbeinu. I don't want to scare anyone, but the translation is Moses, our master. Taekwondo, you have a master, but not in Judaism. 
So, but he, he liked the Deba stories. Because I asked him, I remember I, when I met him, he showed me a picture of his guru, Lahavdil, and I said, uh, did you ever serve him? I don't know, I was trying to make chit-chat. I thought it was a question. He says, I was his butler for 15 years. The guy was a genius, but he was the, the guru's butler for 15 years. Anyways, what I'm saying is, American Jews, just a side commentary, American Jews have lost touch with this very important part of Jewish culture. Um, since I started, maybe I'll just continue my commentary here. But it, it, during World War II, you might know, many Jews ran away eastward, across Asia, and they ended up, there's a community in Shanghai. And uh, at one point, the Japanese, the Japanese had invaded China. It was Manchuria. The Japanese were, the Japanese were part of the Axis. They were, you know, uh, in cahoots with the, with, with the Germans. So they were getting pressure to hand over these Jews who had escaped from Eastern Europe. So the Japanese governor made a meeting with the Jewish community. The representative of the Jewish community was, in this particular meeting, was the Amshanoverov. So, uh, who was a Hasidic rabbi from Poland, originally. So there was a, an interpreter, and there was the Japanese governor, and there was Amshinoverov, and the Japanese governor said, why, ask him, why do the Germans hate you guys so much? So the Amshinover told the translator, tell him, because we're Oriental. So, he told him that answer, and the Japanese governor got up and he said, meeting adjourned. And he found different things to do for the rest of the war. You know, he didn't, <laughs> because we're Oriental. It's not a joke. We think we're part of Western civilization. You know what Western, Western civilization is Edom. Edom is Esav. Yaakov and Esav are our rivals. Western civilization has been our host. Not such a hospitable host. America, we're lucky, you know, we're at the end of, uh, of, of, of history, so we're getting close to Mashiach, so Western civilization is pretty refined now, America is pretty nice. But, you know, ask your great-grandparents what Western civilization was like in Europe, you know, well, ask them what, you know, the Holocaust and Crusades and pogroms and, and Inquisitions, Western civilization wasn't uh, always so nice to us. Only the past 50 years, the evangelicals decided they love Israel and they love Jews, right? But, you know, it wasn't so long ago they didn't that a religious Christian was as scary to a Jew as a religious Muslim. It wasn't so long ago. I'm getting off on a tangent, but my point is we are Orientals. We're an Eastern culture. In Eastern cultures, they value having a master. Nobody would have the chutzpah to dare to aspire to excellence in any area and not have a master, which is why you, you study martial arts. Of course, master chose my master in Taekwondo. But when it comes to Judaism, I don't have a master. You know, barely, barely listen to the rabbi. But my friend, getting back to my story, he understood that a Jew has to have a master. That any, any, in anything you want to be good at, you have to have a master. He appreciated that. So we were studying, and we came to a certain thing, and, and I said, oh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke about it. He knew that that's my master. So I said, he spoke about that topic. Would you like to see a video of him speaking about it? So he's like, yeah, I would. So I said, great. Where's your computer with internet? This was like 15, 20 years ago. So, you know, it wasn't like you just whip out a smartphone. So I said, where's your computer with internet? So he says, in the other room. Now, I should explain to you. I had never been in any other room in the guy's house except for his front room. I knew he was an active Buddhist. So I knew there had to be, let's call it, paraphernalia around. I just didn't, I didn't, I just focused on just the front room. We would just sit down at the coffee table and that's where we would study. I never saw the rest of his house. But I asked him, where's the computer? He says, it's in this other room. So we get up. We walk into a room that's that had always been behind us. We go in there and he has a computer. And I go on the Chabad.org and I find the video and we watch the video. Very nice. And the video finishes. And we turn around to leave the room. And as we turn around to leave the room, I see what has been behind me the entire time that I was unaware of. An altar with an idol 
and incense, like literal Avedazara, like from Gemara. You know, like literal, like this is something I learned about in Yeshiva. A guy that I love and who I, who I, who, who, who I study with and who I know, a beautiful Jewish person, he has this altar and this idol and... Of course, I knew he was a practicing Buddhist. I understood he must have that kind of stuff. But there's one thing intellectually to know and then to see it. It was shocking. It was hurtful. It was, I don't know how to describe it, but it was like a punch in the gut. So at that moment, I wanted nothing more than just to be out of that room. I did not want to be in that room. I needed to get the heck out of there. And so I'll just preface by saying, if you don't know me, you should know I have zero sense of direction. Literally, to the extent I, it, in my own home, I cannot tell you which direction. I, can't, I couldn't tell you what, which way is Mizrach. I, couldn't, I mean, I don't know. I, I, if, I, if I'm in a shul, I look. I say, I look for the, where the Aran is, but that's the only way that I know. And if you would trick me and put it on the west wall, I would believe you. I have no sense of direction. At this moment, I wanted to get out of that room. And I, you know how when you're in a really high pressure situation and you think really, really fast and your mind is just working at lightning speed and you just say something? So I don't know how, I don't know why, but it was a stupid thing to say. I'm walking out of that room and I'm trying to run out of that room and I somehow realize that I'm facing east. And he points to that thing, that abomination. And he says, that's where I pray. And that was like a second punch to the gut. Just seeing it was enough. But then he sees that I see it. He says, that's where I pray. Oh, like why, why do you have to say it? Right? So I just want out of there. And then I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm facing east. And then i got to get out of this room and run past that getchka and I have to move east. He just says, that's where I pray. So I said, oh, so you pray facing east like a Jew. <laughs> I don't know why I said, I just wanted to get out of there. I was just thinking way too fast for my own good. Now, I, I should also mention to you that from the time that I met my friend, that he was very, very ill with the disease that he eventually um, died from. And he was not very mobile. He couldn't move very quickly at all, which is why, it would ha that's, that's why I had to come to his house, even though I knew what kind of stuff was probably in the house. So he says, that's where I pray. Oh, no. <laughs> And we want to get out of here. And so I say to him, oh, so you pray facing east like a Jew. And I start running. <laughs> and this guy starts running after me. I told him he didn't move. He couldn't move. He starts chasing me. He starts chasing me. like I just ran away with, uh, with his wallet. And he's screaming after me through the house. What is he screaming at me? He says, what? Not like a Jew. I am a Jew. A real Jew. Listen to that. He just pointed out his idol to me two seconds ago. But now he just cast aspersions. I said, oh, you're like a Jew. That's when the Pintala Yid comes. What do you mean, like a Jew? Not like a Jew. I am a Jew. A real Jew. And that moment, he had absolute clarity. Absolute clarity. Now, I want to tell you something. Five seconds later, if you would have gone over to him, I didn't, but if you would have, and you would have asked him, are you Jewish? I guarantee you with his brilliant genius mind, he would have given you the most phenomenal Dreykop answer. Am I Jewish? Well, you know, I was born Jewish, my mother's Jewish. Culturally, I like bagels and locks. I mean, I was raised in Judaism. He would not give you a straight answer. You get this all the time from people. 
You know, I don't, I, I don't know who you interact with, but I, I mean, I, I know in my, in my experience, you ask certain people, are you Jewish? And they give you the hem and the whole, oh, it's complicated. What's complicated? Either you are, you are, or you, or you aren't. But there's this simple core identity that has clarity all the time. And for it, there's, there's not, I'm kind of Jewish, I'm a little Jewish, yeah, well, it depends what you mean by the question. No. I am 100%. This is who I am. This is my essence. Not like a Jew. I am a Jew, a real Jew. That's it. That exists within every single Jew. Every single Jew. And if it doesn't look like it, if you're looking at a particular Jew who's protesting their Jewishness, who's, who, who's cursing Judaism, whatever they're saying, I promise you that is sleep talk. People say kite when they're talking in their sleep. But if you would wake them up, and it depends what's it going to take to wake somebody up. So in my story with my friend, that's what woke him up for a second. If you would wake them up, they would speak with clarity, and they would tell you that they are Jewish, and that that, that, that is their essence, and that is their everything. So even Haman, who hated Jews, he had to admit, he could never even, Haman wouldn't say that the Jews are, are no longer Jews. Now, unfortunately, I know Jews who say that about Jews, that Jews are no longer Jews. God forbid. I know Jews who should know better because they're in leadership positions and they're supposed to be scholars who say such terrible words, untrue words, anti-Torah words. But Haman wouldn't say it because ultimately, even Haman knew that a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, and in the worst case scenario, all you can say about him is he's asleep. Yoshno, they've been sleeping. Okay. I told you a lot of stories I didn't think I was going to get into. So I want to, uh, I'm going to make up for lost time, like the pilots always say. By the way, you ever, you ever notice that? I mean, I fly a lot. So the pilots, they'll be, they say this all the time. Well, it took us a lot of time getting off the ground. We were waiting for a runway. We're going to try to make up time in the air. You think that's true? Can they really make up time in the air? Like, well, we were going to go like half speed, but now we're going to go full speed. Okay, so I'm going to try to make up some time in the air over here. No, I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut some stuff out. I'll tell you one more thing. I don't know. I, I don't want to keep you here all night. Toward the end of the Megillah, toward the end of the Megillah, um, when the whole story is, re is resolved, you know, all the ups and the downs and the craziness of it all, and it becomes, you know, a happy day. So then the, the Megillah itself tells us that the, 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 the holiday of Purim becomes instituted. And it says, Al Kain Karu, Layamim Ele, Purim. Therefore, these days, meaning the, the holiday of Purim, was named Purim. Why was it called Purim? Al-Shem HaGoyrel, named after the lottery, which the Goyrel is, in Persian, Pur. So I have a question for you. I understand. Oh, we all know the story about Haman making the lottery, right? Okay. He decided... I'm gonna I'm gonna randomly pick which month to try to launch the the final solution. But here's a simple question. I understand that in the end, Haman tried to make a lottery and he failed. He couldn't get rid of the Jews. But why name the Yumtif after that? The poor, the lottery, was the attempted instrument of destruction. Okay, it failed. But it was the attempted weapon to destroy the Jews. That would be like calling Hanukkah assimilation. Because they wanted to assimilate us, they wanted to Hellenize us, but they failed. They couldn't assimilate us. So let's call Hanukkah assimilation. It's a weird name. He tried to use a lottery to destroy us, oh, but we're going to call the holiday lottery. You hear the question? So, in order to answer this, we have to get pretty Kabbalistic. 
what, what was Hallman doing with lotteries? What was, like he was trying to make it more fun. You know, like you do a fundraiser, you got to do, you know, Chinese auction, right? <laughs> trying to make things exciting. Trying to make a lot. What was, he, what was the lottery thing? Never thought about this? Hey, just take it for granted. That's what it says in the story. What was he doing lotteries for? There was a reason for that. So first of all, you have to understand, just like I think you picked up on when we were going through the conversation between Haman and Hashverish, that Haman was a deep guy. I mean, evil, but deep. Spiritually deep. Spiritual doesn't mean holy. Spiritual can be evil spirituality, dark spirituality. So he, 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 was, a, he was a spiritual genius. And he understood certain spiritual truths. His desire to use a lottery as an instrument of destruction was because of his knowledge of the spiritual workings of the universe. Here's what he knew. Here's what he knew. That... In theory, a lot of things could be a lot of ways. But in practice, once the world is created and it's up and running and the system is the way the system is and God chose a nation and he gave them the Torah and, and, and then God sustains that nation for, 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 for being the ones who are doing the mitzvahs in the world. So now there's no way to get rid of that nation. God can't get rid of the Jews. They're the ones who do mitzvahs. And the whole world exists for the sake of the mitzvahs, right? The world was created for the sake of two things called reishis, the Jewish people and the Torah. So God can't get rid of Jews. Haman knew this very well. Existentially, he has no chance. There's no way to get God. I mean, you can kill a Jew, but you can't kill the Jews, right? But he wanted to get rid of all the Jews, God forbid. But there's no way that it can work. So here's the deal. According to the way the world is set up, according to the way the world is running, what are Haman's odds of getting rid of the Jews? You want to put a number to it? What are his odds? Zero percent. It's an impossibility. It cannot happen. Because of who the Jews are and because of their role, as the chosen people who do Torah and mitzvahs, God cannot have a world without them. So zero percent. Okay. However, however, what if we can get to a level where there's no difference between Jews and anyone else? Meaning almost like a pre, before the decision, before the choosing. Before God gave the Torah to the Jews. A level where it could have gone either way. Could have given the Torah to anyone. If there's such a level where there's really no difference, and there is, by the way, such a level, we think of God as the master of the world, but God is far above worlds. There's a level for, for, for God where, where all creation is like nothing, and darkness is like light, and they're identical, and there's no difference between good and evil because he's just infinite, and those things are finite, and they're just, he's beyond them. So Haman said, I need to tap into that level that's so high where God is so grand and so infinite and so removed from this puny little world that there's no difference between me and Mordechai. And then at least I have a 50-50 shot. At least then it's a coin flip. You understand, if I'm going to say, God, can I, can I kill all the Jews? The answer is no. And I could ask a million times, the answer is going to be no a million times. It's a 0% chance. But if Haman says, let me get to a level where anything could happen because God is so lofty and so infinite that there's no difference between one finite thing and another finite thing, then it's a 50-50 chance. It's a coin flip. Okay, so how is Haman going to make that happen? How is he going to get God's permission, so to speak, or at least up the odds 50-50 to getting God's permission to, uh, to genocide the, the Jewish people? 
Only through a lottery. Only through a lottery. Because a lottery, according to the system that God set up, is random. So if Haman will ask God, can we get rid of Jews in this world? No, you can't. That's not how the world works. But if it's random, well then, 50-50. Either I'll get my way, or Mordecai will get his way. And that's precisely what Haman tried to do. And it would have worked, too. Except, as lofty as Haman's understanding of the spiritual inner workings of the universe was, he failed to understand something. It's true, when you get really, really, really high, when you, I don't mean when you get high, I'm legal. <laughs> when you talk about really high levels, and you get really high, anything's possible, right? When you talk about really, really lofty levels, you know, where God is infinite, and the world is finite, and, you know, dark, light, evil, good, you know, they're just finite things, and God is infinitely above all of it. You're right, then it's a coin flip. Then it's random. But if you keep going, if you keep going, and you get to the essence of God, what does it mean, the essence of God? We were talking about before the essence of a Jew, where a Jew says, I am a Jew, and it's impossible to be anything else. That's the essence of a Jew. There's also the essence of God. The essence of God is that God has an irrational, baseless desire to have a relationship with Jews. Which he cannot escape any more than he can cease being who he is. Because his love for Jews is the deepest expression of who he is. That's how tshuva works. Mitzvahs are the rules he gave us. And if God only existed within the rules, then there would be no hope after you broke a rule. But God exists also above the rules where he says, you know what, even when you didn't do exactly what I said I wanted you to do and I meant it, Right? What part of thou shalt not did you not understand? When I told you what to do, I meant it. And yet, if you get even deeper than that, God wants Jews. He wants to keep them around. And he can't exchange them for another nation. He can't replace them. He can't substitute anyone else for them. Why? Because this is his other half. It's like the half shekel that we donate. You have the a whole shekel is twenty geta, a half shekel is ten. You have the ten spheres above, the godly emanations, the ten koiches hanefesh below, the ten soul powers. You put them together, you get a whole. It's like a husband and a wife who are not two people sharing a life, the two halves of a whole. So God can't get away from the Jews any more than he can get away from himself. That's what Haman didn't know. And that's why we call the Yom Tov Pur, Im, the lottery. Because even when you go to the coin flip, the coin flip, my friends, has been rigged. Think about it. No ancient nation exists today that is contemporaneous to the Jewish people. And no nation was as persecuted as the Jews. By nature, the rules are that eventually a nation comes and a nation goes. The most powerful nations have come and gone. Now a nation that was persecuted as many times and by as many oppressors is still around? That's not statistically possible. You flip a coin. There were Throughout Jewish history, moments where Jewish continuity, survival, was at the brink. Where there was a power that could have exterminated us. And 
historically speaking, statistically speaking, speaking the way that every other nation's history goes, sooner or later, it happens to every nation. And you flip that coin. Okay, fine, so we survived, we survived. The, the coin flip went our way. And then the coin got flipped again. Oh, and we survived again. And then again, and again, and again. And you keep flipping that coin a hundred times, a thousand times, a million. Eventually, the coin flip's not going to go your way, and your nation cannot outlast every other nation. It's just not normal. And yet, what happens? Every human that arises, every human who looks like that he has the means to do it, he might even look like he has divine permission to do it, but the coin flip keeps going every time toward the survival of the Jews. Why? Because, in the end, even randomness cannot erase God's fundamental, baseless, irrational desire for the Jews. Even when we don't do what we're supposed to be doing, we should do what we're supposed to do, but sometimes we're asleep. Even when we don't do what we're supposed to be doing, he won't get rid of us. He can't get rid of us any more than he can get rid of himself. Because we're not a culture, we're not an ethnicity, we're not a, we're not a nation state, a language, we're not even a religion. Because there, there are Jews, like my friend, who, who claim not even to follow the Jewish religion. God forbid, God forbid they, they, they follow another religion. And still they're Jews. They can't stop being Jews. Jewish identity is divinity. And just like God will always exist, and God cannot not exist, wrap your mind around that. If your God concept could even in theory not exist, what you're thinking of is not God. Just like God will always exist and cannot not exist, the Jewish people will always exist and cannot not exist. That's the lesson of Purim. So, now that we know that we're here forever, and God has this crazy thing for us, no matter how we behave, bottom line is, let's be nice, you know, <laughs> God has a pretty high opinion of us, we should act like it, we should behave like it, behave like Jews, do the mitzvahs, acts of goodness and kindness, Purim's coming up, Purim is all about goodness and kindness, you know, all the Purim mitzvahs have to do with uh, getting together, caring about others, caring about the downtrodden, those who are normally forgotten. And uh, this Purim already, we should uh, celebrate on, on, on the 15th in Yiddish Halayim in a walled city, the way it's meant to be.